a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Where is the global economy headed? It's anyone's guess. And the latest report from the International Monetary Fund may offer some clue. The International Monetary Fund said on Monday that it now expects the global economy to grow from 3.4% in 2022 to 2.9% in 2023. That is up from a forecast of 2.7% in October. China's reopening was cited as cause for optimism. And the IMF projects that China and India will together account for half of the global growth. Meanwhile, in the United States, the Federal Reserve has once again raised its interest rate in an effort to curb inflation. How will these dynamics play out in shaping the global economy in 2023? Let's talk to our panelists. Liu Baocheng is Dean of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. And also here with me is Atu Dalatoti, Executive Director at the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, joining us from Xiamen. And also in Beijing, we have Emmanuel Daniel, chairman at TAB Global and author of The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is here. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Let's look at some key data, key project, uh, forecast from the IMF outlook. It says the global economy will grow. Actually, the growth rate will go down from 3.4% to 2.9%. The U.S. is down to 1.4% and the U.K. is expected to a whopping drop to minus 0.6%, but emerging and developing Asia is on an upward trajectory, with China growing to 5.2%. Of course, that is a forecast, that is a poll. Uh, Emmanuel, why do you think we have this disparity between Europe and Asia and between developed and developing economies? The thing about this IMF report, uh, which is done twice a year, is that it's a snapshot of a period in time. So that's what conditions look like right now. Uh, and the numbers that you've just cited, uh, a lot of it has to do with China's reopening uh, in January. Uh, this dichotomy between uh, developed and developing country, countries, uh, if I were to put it down to uh, one most important factor, is the cost of credit. Uh, I think that in a lot of the developed countries, the cost of credit has skyrocketed. Uh, and there's a lag time uh, for the developing countries uh, for the cost of credit to affect these countries. Uh, and then, of course, of, uh, there is the excess liquidity that is in the, in the European uh, and the developed economies, uh, which is still working its way through. So inflation is very high, uh, and a lot of the regulators and the central banks in, in the developed countries are still battling uh, inflation. Yeah, Atu, what do you make of the IMF forecasts and projections? The forecast mentioned and singled out China and India, which will account for over half of the global growth. Well, China India bilateral trade, you know, has seen very rapid growth. The trade, which used to be less than a billion US dollars in 2000, today stands at more than 136 billion dollars. Yes, the trade deficit that India has with China is not sustainable and we need to find ways and means to address this issue. For that, we need the officials of both the countries to sit together and work out the modalities. I feel there are many areas where these two countries with a combined population of over 2.8 billion people can cooperate like pharmaceuticals, agricultural products, alternate medicine, wellness and service trade. I also strongly feel 
that India should try to increase the penetration in the China market of its high-end products. Chinese consumers are quite open in their outlook for accepting top quality products and cosmetics comes to my mind. I remember one of the soaps from India became a bestseller in China in the early 90s and I'm sure there are good products from India that we can bring to the China market. With the big changes due to artificial intelligence, big data, internet of things, augmented reality and <laughs> autonomous vehicles, we are going to see India-China work together in the areas of shared economy, leading to a lot of opportunities in the service trade. Yeah, you're right, Atu. The trade deficit between our two countries actually crossed the 100 billion mark, 100 billion US dollars, of course, for the first time ever as Indian exports to China dropped. Uh, what do you think accounted for that? I think there is a huge demand in India because India is also growing very quickly. And I think one of the major areas of exports from China is the uh, handheld devices because India is now a country with more than a billion connected people. So even the people who are doing agriculture are now depending on handheld devices to get information about the weather, the costs of uh, seeds and everything. So I think as India grows, as a 1.4 billion people grow, they require a lot of things. And that's the reason why we have much more exports from China to India. But as I said in my previous remark, this is not sustainable. We need to bridge this gap. And that's why it's important to diversify the export portfolio from India. Well, I think the uh, one uh, strategic uh, solution is that uh, India can be more open for Chinese investment because, uh, for example, Huawei and uh, Xiaomi, etc., they are investing a lot, and there is uh, also uh, China Industrial Park that is being proposed. But uh, what is required is that uh, India needs to streamline its uh, investment policy to give more predictability to those investors. So in this way, you know, we can really make more mobile phones, for example, uh, yeah, locally, and then uh, re-export not only to China, but also to the rest of the world. That, that is a strategic solution to uh, balance the trade. I really don't agree that these two things are connected. The trade has to be balanced. China needs to import more from India. And that's why let's not try to put these two things together. The investment part is very, very important because these two countries, which are neighbors, need to invest in each other's countries. And we need to have similar policies where Indian investment should be equally welcome to come to China and Chinese investments could be equally welcome to come to India. But let's not try to dilute the fact that the trade deficit is one of the major issues that we need to address. Well, actually, if you look at the Chinese experience and over the past more than four decades, China really attracts more of the foreign investment from the United States, from Europe, and that really strengthened China's exporting power because it does not only bring capital, but also technology and working expertise, etc. And by having the quality increase and also offering the export channels, uh, you know, more made in China can really be exported and that, that is there uh, to support the Chinese uh, increasing the trade surplus. 
I think you know this type of practice can also be considered for uh, many other developing countries where they can attract investment to mitigate the gap of uh, uh, investment deficit and also to train the local capacity and then to promote the export drive to earn more foreign exchange and then balance the trade. I think we can agree on one thing, gentlemen, that is uh, there's great potential, for, there's great room for China-India trade and investment relations to grow. I hope this, this show can focus more on China-India relations, and unfortunately, we have so many countries and regions and sectors to focus on. Professor Liu, uh, can I pick your mind on the IMF forecast on the Chinese economy, 5.2%. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that projection? Well, that's a very, a very much a renewed optimistic forecast because uh, in last October, China was uh, still maintaining the zero COVID policy, and uh, there was uh, uh, no expectation that China could really lift the uh, the ban uh, so quickly. So, therefore, um, by uh, lifting the tight control, uh, more productivity can be resumed, and uh, more social mobility can be enhanced, and particularly the service sector will be invigorated. So therefore, there's a good reason for them to uh, to raise their expectation over Chinese growth. And the other is that uh, uh, because China is heavily re- reliant on the import of uh, uh, many of the raw materials and energy, etc., now that uh, the energy price, at least, is uh, uh, getting more and more stabilized, and that is something that can help China to build more resilience in its economy. And more importantly, I think the Chinese Economic Work Conference uh, by the central government really gave more of the confidence to all investors, not only domestically, but also internationally, for the Chinese market. Yeah, Emmanuel, you have been living in China for for quite a while. Uh, This uh, projection, 5.2% by the MF, what's your take on that? Well, it's... um it's a re-rating, taking into consideration the opening up of China. But what the IMF didn't say very much in its report, uh, it's, uh, it's what its uh, outlook is going forward. And I think that they've taken into consideration the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is rising U.S. interest rates. It's affecting everybody around the world. Uh, and that's why, um, you know, although there's cautious optimism, it is a cautious there's a cautiousness in the report that uh, uh, all of the dividends from China opening up uh, will be absorbed in the first quarter, and then we get to uh, deal with some of the real issues uh, in, in the next two quarters coming up. Uh, and I think that we need to uh, spend some time thinking about uh, what the outlook will be like going forward. Uh, in fact, just reading the report, and by the way, uh, Citibank is even more sanguine than mm. uh, than the IMF. I think it uh, forecasts the growth of 5. 7% rather than 5.2. So that's uh, the investment banks seem to be a lot more hopeful about China uh, than the IMF itself. The IMF has been very cautious uh, in its uh, outlook. But going forward, um, I think we have to be concerned about the possibility of a credit event happening in the next two quarters. Uh, these are events where either large corporations or countries, you know, whether it's in this part of the world, Southeast Asia is especially vulnerable, where corporations are unable to meet their debt commitments uh, because the dollar rates are very high. Uh, I think that that's uh, the elephant in the room, the, mm-hmm. the unspoken problem uh, that is uh, uh, as endemic as the opening up as China. Yeah, definitely, Emmanuel. Uh, seizing upon that point, the elephant in the room, the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, a few hours ago 
uh, just raised its benchmark interest rate by a quarter uh, percentage point, which is widely expected. And also, it gave little indication that it is nearing the end of its rate hike cycle. Uh, what do you make of that? You know, uh, Powell said that uh, that will continue for a while. And I think the U.S. markets have absorbed the rate hikes, uh, you know, expectations for the next two quarters. Uh, it will result uh, in credit events in the U.S. Uh, in the next two quarters for sure, meaning that there is an upside ceiling to the productivity gains uh, and the ability of uh, large corporations in the U.S. to absorb uh, credit costs at this point. So I think that um, we need to be cautious that, that there is no end in sight yet on the Federal Reserve Bank's uh, battle against inflation. And as it turns out, the country that suffers most from the Federal Reserve Bank, surprisingly, is the UK. Because the UK's own credit costs, uh, you know, has hit the ceiling um, and, um, you know, the country has to balance its budget. So uh, there are concerns about taxation, um, you know, being introduced and so on. So uh, there are countries that, unexpected countries, uh, that are being affected uh, by the rise of the US rates. In Southeast Asia, in China, we are all trading countries and uh, the export potential and, and uh, the ability to import high industrial goods at, at, at reasonable rates. These are the issues that, uh, that confront uh, developing countries uh, or countries that are still uh, you know, growing their trade capabilities. Yeah, Atu, talking about the ripple effect of the, the Fed's rate hike, how do you expect that decision to affect um, developing economies, especially um, those you know, in China and in India? I see that in the past three years, you know, the cons uh, there has been a lot of savings in both India and China because of COVID. And the consumers are coming out with all guns blazing in a sense. And we saw that uh, during the Chinese New Year when the box office collection was over $900 million. It's quite amazing and a clear indication that consumption is finally catching up after this COVID, especially the COVID wave in China. As an Indian, I'm, I always would love to see more movies coming from India into Chinese screens. But I think the Chinese consumer is coming to age now. So as we get out of into an area of COVID, we are going to see that a lot of consumption is going to take over and we'll have travel coming back. We'll have investments coming back. So the whole process will move forward. Uh, the increase in interest rates in the US, of course, does have a clear effect on the Indian rupee because interest rates keep going up. In the US, they put a lot of pressure on India and on China. But I think the overall environment today is such that small interest rate increase in the US does not really put a very big burden on Indian and Chinese economies to grow. So I'm very positive that as uh, the projections are, that the, the year 2023 is going to be a good year for the Indian and Chinese economy. Yeah, uh, Professor Liu, Atu just mentioned the Chinese uh, consumer market, um, the box office revenues, uh, travel bookings. Uh, some economists that I've talked to believe that those numbers are probably not uh, statistically significant to substantiate the assertion that the Chinese economy, the consumer market is rebounding for sure. Uh, what do you think? I think it's a, 
provisional rebounding, and uh, there is a revenge conception uh, syndrome that is there because uh, you know after you are locked down for a long time, and then you just wanted to play out uh, in uh, the open places, etc. But uh, it's, uh, you know after the shock wave of uh, widespread uh, infection, uh, we do see that uh, there is more stabilized confidence. Uh, for the Chinese economy, and we can see that the coffee shops, <coughs> restaurants are filling uh, with more people, and uh, uh, shopping malls are, uh, you know, getting uh, reopened, and uh, we can see that uh, the travel uh, is uh, really getting uh, more and more normalized, and the tra uh, the traffic jam is also returning. So, uh, you know, the uh, this way. It's more of getting more rationalized type of uh, uh, consumption pattern that is uh, there to be more stable. So, and, uh, uh, you know, from uh, France circles, we uh, we can see that uh, they are making travel plans, and uh, uh, not only uh, you know for the spring festival, but also uh, for the, uh, the, the for the entire year. So, therefore, we can see that the hardest hit service sector is going to uh, you know revive. And then uh, with the more of the confidence injected through the economic uh, conference, uh, you know, putting on uh, the uh, uh, further emphasis on the economic growth. So the real estate sector is going to see some type of recovery. And then uh, productivity in many of those export-driven uh, factories are really resuming. Talking about the world economy, ASEAN is a major player. It's one of the largest trading partners of China. Uh, Emmanuel, uh, the IMF has forecast that um, there will be a, a downward um, projection for the ASEAN's economy. Why do you think that is the case? Uh, Wang Guan, can I just add to that uh, sure. comment on, on consumption in China? Overconsumption, uh, you know, the numbers showed up uh, during the Lunar New Year. But uh, substantial consumption, car sales and mortgages, home sales, are still uh, very soft in China. And I think that that's a function of inflation uh, and consumer confidence going forward. I think that this is a great time for China to rein in its own inflationary uh, trends and win back consumption on home mortgages and on uh, car sales, for example. That's a much more uh, substantively a leading indicator for, uh, for consumer uh, confidence. Now, coming back to Southeast Asia, um, many of the Southeast Asian countries are export-driven uh, and their corporates are exposed to dollar debt. Um, and and uh, the, uh, the, the macroeconomics uh, is very uh, forex or foreign exchange uh, sensitive. So these are three factors that, um, you know, that causes, uh, and all, of, all three of them uh, are directly related to uh, dollar rates. In fact, uh, just about every Southeast Asian country is fighting against um, you know, the rise in, in, the, in the dollar rate at the moment, uh, exchange rate against the dollar. Uh, and I think that um, you know, uh, as they adjust the economies, um, what I've seen is that uh, in a number of them, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, and in, in the Philippines, debt to GDP ratios are still among the best in the world, actually. Uh, but uh, even if they are below 100%, uh, they, they are still exposed to um, the cost of credit. Uh, and I think that's what's affecting, uh, you know, the softness of the Southeast Asian markets. Wow, thanks for highlighting those uh, uncertainties. Uh, Atul, uh, 
as the director, the executive director of the Indian Chamber of Commerce and Industry here, uh, a major risk is, of course, uh, public health emergencies and, uh, you know, the public health-induced policy uncertainties here in China. I'm sure you have seen uh, one thing or two about that in the past three years. Um, there, there are talks about the future waves of COVID and, uh, you know, sub-variants of Omicron. You've been living in China for many years. Uh, how serious, how real do you think those dangers are? You know, the last wave of COVID in China was a big one, and it seems to have passed away. We were very fearful that during the Chinese New Year, we'll see many more COVID patients, but that did not happen, which is a very welcome sign. We certainly need to be careful about the new variants coming back, and pandemic prevention and vaccination seems to be the only way forward. Therefore, it's very important for the media also to spread the important message of erring on the side of caution in the future. So 2023 still could throw a few surprises our way. So we need to get the economy going, help increase consumption, increase travel, have more foreign trade and investments, but at the same time, still maintain a cautious outlook. That's the way I look at the present situation. Yeah, to what areas do you see the, you know, potentially having the most robust growth? Um, I mean, coming from India to China, um, commercial-wise or investment-wise in the year 2023? So for 2023, the areas which I see a lot of possibility is in the area of pharmaceuticals. And I am very uh, much of the uh, belief that the service trade has immense potential. India is an IT hub today for the international businesses. And we are also doing a lot of services for those international businesses in China. We hope that in 2023, we can work more with Chinese companies, not only for their international businesses, but also for their businesses in China. And I personally wish that India and China can become champions of globalization and work together to create a new world order, which is based on the principles of equality and encourage resource sharing and interconnected development. I think that is where we need to take this economy of both India and China, 2.8 billion people, two biggest engines of growth in the world. That is the way I look at it. Yeah, that is also the wish of many uh, emerging economies to have a multipolar world economy. Uh, Professor Liu, uh, you recently wrote a co-authored a book called Revolution in the Global Economy. Uh, it's nominated for a number of global economic awards. Uh, can you tell, tell us a bit about the main findings of your book? I think one finding is really to challenge the uh, classic and neoclassic economics where uh, they hold many of those uh, conditions constant, which are really changing, in fact. And we are also challenging the Fukuyama's, uh, you know, the end of a history, or, you know, Fredman's, uh, you know, the world is getting flat. Actually, the, uh, the world is getting more rugged, and uh, the history is never end. And there is more inclusivity, and there's more diversity in terms of the political governance, in terms of the geopolitics, and uh, uh, in terms of the growth model, uh, in which China is also under the spotlight. Uh, for its own unique way of uh, growing its economy, of managing its own country. And the other point is that uh, past dependence will cause diminishing return. So therefore, 
you know, for uh, actually, if you look at many of the crises that we are facing, uh, many of those decision making are really made as a matter of expediency instead, instead mm -hmm. of a long term integrity. And so the politicians respond, uh, you know, too dramatically to some of their constituencies in order to win popularity. And then uh, they lose sight of the uh, long-term uh, growth and long-term sustainability. So I think that's, this is really there to remind uh, the uh, key decision makers you know, to have a more rational calculation and to look at the complexity and the diversity of the uh, whole world situation. Yeah, political expediency over economic rationality. Uh, we've seen that again and again and again. Emmanuel, we have uh, two more minutes left. Uh, I want to pick your mind on the fallout of the war in Ukraine on the world economy, because we've seen many countries suffer, many sectors are suffering. Uh, for example, recently I've talked to some enterprises in northern China and they're running out of corn. Why? Because Ukraine um, was the major supplier of corn, 95% of them. And now Ukraine stopped exporting corn to China. Well, you know, I've uh, traveled to probably 20 countries in the last six months. And the, uh, the thing that hit me uh, dramatically um, in the face lit almost uh, was the rise in food prices in a number of countries, uh, especially destitute ones, uh, and um, the um, you know recalibration of the availability of gas. Uh, you know, in a number of countries, I actually um, had situations where the gas stations had run out of gas. So, um, so the repercussions are real. Uh, at the same time, on the macroeconomic front, uh, I think what the IMF has done in its report, by the way, is that it's, re it's actually recalibrated the actual global uh, impact or economic impact. Um, if you notice in, the, in, in this uh, January report that it re-rated Russia uh, as being able to grow its GDP from a negative uh, rate to 0 0.1 or something like that. I think it's 0 0.1. Um, and... Um, 0 0.3, uh, you know, and uh, that's uh, interesting. What it's saying in the report then is that um, that um, the oil inventories are being accounted for globally. Uh, even the, the growth in Europe uh, has been re-rated uh, because um, gas prices are not as high, uh, have been, um, you know, have been re-rated in, in, in that sense. So uh, what's interesting, such, uh, you know, in a subtle way uh, from the uh, Ukraine crisis is that a new world order is arising. Uh, you know, the countries that are benefiting from uh, this crisis are not the usual suspects. In fact, um, Emmanuel, that's all the time we have, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. So, Thank you yeah. so much. Come back again. Please. Okay, take care. And that will do it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Our news coverage continues on CGTN. Bye and take care.